The biggest stress for me was not what I'd done, not what I was going to court for, not that I could go to prison for five years. I wasn't worried about that. And now that sounds like I'm being big and hard and all that. But the fact of the matter is, if I'd been smuggling drugs into the country, I would be panicking. Not because I was going to prison, but because I've been caught doing something really bad and criminal. It's never been in my mindset to look at what I did and say I did wrong. My goodness me, what have we come to in, in society if helping a four-year-old innocent little girl is a crime, is beyond me? Now that is just a snippet of the story that I've got in store for you today. I'm releasing this podcast on World Refugee Day 2020, which also marks one year since this podcast was born. Thank you to everyone for listening to it so far. I can't believe that we already have two seasons under our belt with each episode sharing an individual story. And I have some amazing people lined up for season three. So kicking off the season today, I'm joined by a guest whose name might be familiar to you. Rob Laurie is an ex-soldier turned volunteer from the north of England who made international headlines when he was caught smuggling a four-year-old girl from the Calais Jungle refugee camp in France across the border and into the UK. Rob's actions saw him facing years in a French prison, with some branding him a criminal, but others saw him as a hero and his crime a crime of compassion. For those of us volunteering in Calais at the time, it posed the question, would we do the same? As you listen to this episode, I imagine you'll be asking yourself a similar question. But Rob's story didn't end with the judge's verdict. His relationship with this girl's family has gone on to take many more unexpected twists and turns over the years. I'll let Rob explain. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. started really I mean I was laid on a sunbed having a normal life in Lanzarote with my daughter but it all changed when I saw that image of little Alan Curdy on a beach I don't know what happened something just I mean I know it affected a lot of people around the world but it just absolutely changed the direction of my life because I was like everybody else, you know, you've got a car, you want a newer car, you've got a house, you want a bigger house, you, you've got some nice clothes, you want some nicer clothes. You, you know, I was, I was, mm-hmm. and, and that's how we are as humans, you know, in, in the West. We live in a, a commercial capitalist society and, you know, I was, I was no different from everybody, from anybody else. I had enough, but the desire in me wanted more. 
And that picture was the trigger for you? It just unlocked something inside me. I didn't I didn't just see the photograph. I saw, you know, I, I looked at I remember I remember studying that picture and looking at his jet black hair, his tiny fingers. Uh, and it just opened up all sorts of emotions as if to say to me, you know, there's, it's almost like the universe was saying, look, Rob, there's other things going on in the world that you need to look at. Most people say the problem is that big that I can't help. What can I do? I'm only just me. But the truth of the matter mm-hmm. is, and I, I'd like to think that I'm proof of this, that one person, no matter how insignificant they think they are to any problem, they can absolutely make a massive difference in not just one person's life, but many people's lives. Well, let's start from the beginning of that journey. So you were in Lanzarote and did you make a decision there and then that you wanted to go and volunteer? So I came up with a plan to go into action, collecting. And I knew nothing about the Calais jungle, but I did know that was nearest to me. I could nip down to Dover, get a ferry, go across, drop some donations off, come back. I was, at that point, satisfied with doing that just once. And what happened when you did that just once? <laughs> well, I, you know, when I got back to the UK, I, I put that plan into action. I had my own company at the time, a little carpet cleaning company, and I had a van. I filled that van with... I mean, I put a post on Facebook, and people were so generous. I mean, within sort of like three or four days, my house, kitchen, lounge hallway bedrooms were full of black black bin liners of clothes tents sleeping bags gloves hats so there was a real desire out there uh, i'd unlocked in people's sort of like mindset right need to get this to rob he's going to cali so there was that desire to help and that i was just going for the one time i was just nip down to cali do my thing come back then i can carry on with life saying i did my thing And I did help a little bit. And, uh, you know, if everyone did what I did just once, it'd be all right. Well, that changed when I landed at Calais. It was that first day of wrecking the camp, which completely... Well, first of all, it angered me because what I'd been seeing on the news was not what I was seeing in the camp. I always say that. The reality was so different from the media representation, right? Yeah, and that still goes on today. There were lots of women there. There were, uh, you know, a lot of children there. I mean, I got to know these people and they're still friends of mine today. The way you find out the reality is when you sit down around a campfire at midnight, sharing food, dipping bread in the lentils and, and listen to the stories. So that's what I started doing. And I knew at that point this wasn't going to be a solitary journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I saw was... Two, two, two things. I, I saw a need for immediate human basic necessities, food, you know, warmth, uh, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And I knew my one van wasn't going to cut it. So that's when I decided to... Uh, this was going to be a longer term commitment, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, yeah. What I really relate to in your story is that I got very emotionally involved in many people in the camp. And that's something that I think when you work for a big NGO, 
you actually get training to avoid that, right? Or at least your hours and your protocol doesn't allow for that. Whereas when you're kind of grassroots and doing it off your own back, you don't have those kind of safeguarding procedures in place to stop you from getting too attached and and emotionally invested. And I guess that kind of happened to you too, right? Would you say? Well, I don't want to be detached. And I've never been like that. And that's why I never joined an NGO. I'm much more of an emotional person. I want to get entwined to understand people's lives and have them understand my life and have, have me understand where they come from and why. And the way you get to know that is not just by finding a person who needs something, supplying that need and walking away. The way you get to educate yourself in order to educate other people is to get entwined in in that person's life, to understand, you know, why they have come from where they have. And I spent five years doing this because you know yourself. When you first talk to what we deem a refugee, I I don't even, you know, if you want to use that term, they have a story, you know, and usually that story's got manipulation in it to make it better for their asylum case. And that's not their fault. That's the that's this system of asylum cases around country. If you, don't, if you don't fit into a category, you don't get to stay. You have to tick a box. Yeah, you have to tick a box. What I wanted to do is, 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 is get to know these people over time. So there's a massive trust there. Because what I really wanted to do is get under the asylum application story to the truth. And the, and the mm. truth of the matter is, the truth is far more black than what they have to tell the, the, when they're filling out asylum forms around Europe. And that's what I concentrate on doing, is, is getting down to the nitty-gritty of what exactly has gone on in your life, in your family's life, to make you do this journey. Mm-hmm. You know what, Rob, I am totally with you that you can read all the history books or Mm. read all of the news articles about what's happening in Darfur or the regime in Syria or what's happening in Iraq. But that doesn't stick in the way that it does when you hear it firsthand from someone who's fleeing the Janjaweed and they tell you what they did to their family. That, for me, has been the biggest learning and the best way to share those stories and those situations by doing it through human stories, you know? I'll I'll give you an example. I have a video on my phone that eventually a friend of mine, uh, Musab, gave me. He's from Sudan. And he didn't show this to anyone. And and I've known Musab for about five years now. He has a, a video on his phone of his best friend from school... And a, a tr- uh, an opposing tribe, that was his words, came in uh, into his place in Darfur and necklaced his friend. Uh, and at this point, he was 17 and his friend was 17. Now, do you know what necklacing is? No. Right, OK. They took his friend, they tied his hands behind his back. And I, I've seen it, I've got this video. And they put a tyre around his neck. They filled the tyre with petrol and then they burnt it. They burnt him. Oh, my God. So, you, you know, the, this is the reality. Wow, that's horrible. That's made me feel just... If we go back to that time, 2016 it was mm. for you, right? Yeah. When you first started to go to Calais mm. and you first started meeting these people and, and getting to know their stories. Mm. Tell me what happened from there. There was some children there. Uh, with 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 one parent uh, and some of them were lone children 
Well, I know that very well because I've got four unaccompanied minor brothers who all came to the UK on their own. I'm very aware of like how many children there were and teenagers, mm. but there was a lot of younger ones too, right? Oh, a lot of younger ones too, yeah. So that's when I met Brew. And I don't know why, but she just... Brew was... Uh, that little girl just started following me about. Uh, she was a... She was a right little boisterous thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, f- full of character. And she had the same personality as my daughter when my, my daughter was four years old. Cheeky, but lovable. He just, <laughs> he just followed me around, the little bugger. And, uh, you know, and, and then, I, of course, you get to know her story and the, and the father's story. Bruce's dad, Reza, right? He, were, he became your friend, right? He, came, he became my friend. The story was, you know, he was from Afghanistan. That he was there alone with her and that her, mo- her mother had died. That is exactly right, yeah. So, you know, when I see a little child living in... I mean, you get close to a little, ch- little girl like that and, you know, you see, you see them living in, in this... I mean, it was squalid, you know. I, I don't need to tell you how it was. People see the news for 10 seconds. They don't smell the smells. They don't feel mm-hmm. the cold. They, go, they don't feel that wind at night time, you know. They don't experience going to those portaloos. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I just thought, you know, would I... Would I, if I... If my child was living like this, would I want someone to do everything in their power to get my child to safety? And the answer was yes, mm-hmm. I would. That's when I call it lack of training, overcompassion, call it what you want, after about... You know, two and a half, three months of that little mite following me around the camp, decided to attempt to smuggle her to the UK to be with her family. And that's because her dad told you that she had family in the UK. That is exactly right. Just to paint the picture even more, you know, night times in that camp were freezing and they had no other option. They had they were stuck there crossing to the UK with a four year old girl. If you're hiding underneath the train or hiding in the back of a lorry is pretty impossible. Right. So was Reza's plan for you to take Brew and then for him to follow illegally, which would have been his only option, Mm. but easier without having a child with him? Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Actually, his his plan. So, okay. first of all, it would have been a lot easier. It would free him up to negotiate smuggling him across in, into the UK. He hasn't got a little girl to look after. Second of all, mm-hmm. smugglers charge a premium charge a premium for children for the obvious risk that they carry. You know, if they wake mm-hmm. up in the back of the truck, if they start crying, if they start kicking off or something like that. At that time, to get across the UK for a, for an adult was round about between anything between two and six thousand pounds. For a child, that could be as much as ten thousand pounds or euros. Sorry, yeah. we're working in euros. That could be as much as ten thousand euros. I eventually decided that I would help Reza to get mm-hmm. and and to take her in my sleeping compartment. The one thing I will say, if I'd been in a car. I would not have put her in a boot, you know. I would not have. I yeah. would not have hidden a, a four-year-old child under floorboards. The only the, the deciding factor was that I had a, a sleeping compartment designed for me, kitted out with a bed and a quilt cover and a pillow. You know that that was that was the deciding factor for me. There's no. I mean, you hear these stories of. I mean, there's a, there's a girl a week after I did it who took a fourteen-year-old boy down to Dieppe in the boot of her car. And she got a year's prison sentence. 
you know, but I, I just want to point out, you know, I, I, there was, it was never on my thought process to, to put that little girl's life in danger by doing something like that. Yeah, you knew that she would be comfortable. Yeah. Once I decided to do it, I thought it all through. It was she was going to be in my comp- sleeping compartment from the camp to the ferry at midnight. There's no queues. So that's, what, a five-minute journey? I'd done that journey, you know, a few times by that time, so I knew there was no real queues for the ferry at that time of night. She was going to sit in the lanes for a few minutes. She was going to come onto the ferry. I was not going to get out of my van while she slept above me. I wasn't going to leave her there while I went upstairs and, and moseyed around the duty-free shop. And then I was going to drive off the ferry, out of Dover, pull over straight away and get her out of there. It was late at night. She would have been sleeping throughout. Yeah. That was my thought process behind it. If, mm-hmm. I, if, if I had to drive across France or, or do, you know, like three or four hundred miles with her in that sleeping compartment, once again, I wouldn't have done it. As you leave the camp, you know yourself, you are literally within a mile entering the ferry terminal. I don't, I don't regret trying to smuggle brew into the country at all. In that moment of crossing the border with Brew, mm. they found her, right? Yeah. The border forces in France. Yeah. And you were put into jail. So uh, you go through the French border, which, as you know, is never manned. Mm-hmm. Then you go through about 500 yards and you come to the British border in Calais, don't you? Show your passport, yes. blah, blah, blah. There you go. Where have you been? And I didn't tell them I'd been to the jungle uh, for obvious reasons. They mm-hmm. want to uh, inspect the back of the vehicle. So I just said, I've just been working down in Paris. So I told him a bit of a lie. And then they gave me a, a lane thing and uh, I was queuing for the ferry. Then the sniffer dog appeared <laughs> and mm-hmm. picked up a scent. And I was asked to go back for an inspection. And that's when all hell let, let loose. They didn't actually find Brew. They never found Brew. I I told them about Brew when I was back in prison. About four hours later. I'm sorry, I'm talking like you know, people know the story and I'm skipping. (laughs) Just for the sake of people who don't know the story, tell them what happened. If you go back to the earlier that day, uh, near me is a a big shop called Cash for Clothes. Near your house in Leeds, back in England, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and you'll know if you've been to the warehouse, 90% of donations were spot on, boots, sleeping bags and all that. But there was also a lot of donations that were just people getting rid of crap. Mm-hmm. Were, I mean, wedding dresses, for goodness sake. We got all sorts, yeah. bikinis, yeah. high heels. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And again, just to clarify, this is the warehouse in Calais that holds most of the donations for the camp, right? Yeah, so I had the idea that I could fill my van with all these donations, take them back to the, the shop near me and cash them in and then reinvest that money into building shelters, which I thought was a great idea. Uh, there was two girls, I can't remember their names, two lovely girls who had a van that were work, I was communicating with up at the warehouse. So I said to them, why don't you fill your van, because they had the same size of van, with all the donations, bring him down, meet me in the camp, and we'll transfer him over. Mm-hmm. So they said, yeah, great idea. And this was, a, this was on the afternoon of the 24th of October, 2015, and I was going back that night. 
there was an access road to the back of the camp. So I said, right, go there and I'll get all my Sudanese friends, as many people as we can, we'll form a human chain uh, to transfer the stuff from your van to my van. So that's what we did. We acted like ants, basically. Uh, now, mm-hmm. me being the alpha male, ex-army, tough guy and all that crap, I decided I'd be at the front of the queue catching the bags to pass it back. Well, if I'd been wise at that time, I'd have been at the back of the queue protecting the back of my van so no one gets in. Yeah. Which, you know, I just never gave it a second thought. Naivety on my part, uh, I suppose. So we eventually cross-loaded all the bags. And there must have been, there must have been two, two and a half hundred black bin liners full of cash for clothes was taken back. Once the van was full, I shut the van. This would have been about probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. So I locked that van up for the rest of the day. It never moved. And then later on in the night, about 11 o'clock, going for the midnight ferry, I loaded Brew up into the sleeping compartment. It was asleep right above my head. And I do remember just pulling over and just saying a prayer, saying, "Okay, I've never done anything like this. Get me through this. You know, get this little girl to safety, blah, 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 and all that. And then went through... I repeated that prayer in a prison cell about six hours later saying, you know, which part of my prayer did you not understand? I just wanted this one thing. I've never been one to pray for more money or, or, or a bigger car. I've never been one to pray for that. You know, I've always prayed, tried to pray for other people. I'm in the queue to the ferry and I'm, I'm a little bit concerned at this point because you know those you know those Arctic wagons that are fridge wagons. Mm-hmm. They've got the freezer units on the outside. Yeah. Well, they make a big long humming noise, don't they, when they're when they're on? Mm-hmm. And there was one of those next to me in the queue, and it was buzzing away and buzzing away and buzzing away. And I'm thinking, oh, I hope that doesn't wake her up. And I'm literally looking at the ferry, tap 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 on the window, and there was a, a, a young lady there with a dog. And she says, evening, how are you doing? All right. And I remember replying to her in a whisper. And I kind of went, yeah, I'm, I'm all right, thanks. <laughs> she went, oh, the dog's just shown an interest in your van. Uh, she says, you know, can I ask you what you got in the back? So I s- explained what it was. It was just clothes. She went, all right. She says, can we just have a look? I said, yeah. And I opened the back of the van and it was just packed out, you know, black bin liner bags. So she said, okay, shut the doors. So I shut the doors. And she went went away on the walkie-talkie, came back and said, right, we just need to have a better look at it. And at, at that point, I thought, oh, no, the sniffer dog's picked up. But then half of me was thinking, maybe they've picked up the smell from the clothes because she was well hidden up there. I mean, there was a curtain across and you couldn't really tell it was a bulkhead. It was quite well well designed. Not for smuggling, I might add. So at this point, we've got to go have a closer inspection. You know, can you just follow me? She pulled me out of the queue and walked at a pace for about 100 yards where uh, a border force car pulled in front of me with with lights saying, follow me. So I followed. And don't forget, it's about one o'clock in the morning now. It's cold. It's drizzling. You know, that Mm -hmm. rain, that really wet, wet rain, that that rain that just soaks you through to the skin. Mm -hmm. And I was tired. I've been awake for about... 24 hours by this time I stunk to high have enough campfires and I'm just thinking oh no what's going on so we got to the office and there must have been six or seven border guards come out and just formed a semicircle around the back of my van and then they brought out a portable light 
which they erected behind my van and shone it into my van. I thought, this is a bit serious, this. So they said, right, go on, empty your van out. And you got to remember, like I said earlier, there's like 200, there's like 200 bags mm-hmm. in there. So I started unloading them, drenched through, tired, you know, just so tired. And uh, and scared? Throwing. Were you scared? I often get asked that question, were you scared? And if there'd been cocaine in there or heroin or I'd been a dickhead, sort of like, you know, trying to smuggle drugs into the country, I'd have been petrified. But throughout it all, I, was, I kept saying, look, this is a little girl that I'm trying to help, you know, Keep it real. You believed in what uh, you were doing. Yeah, I completely believed in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was just tired and trying to be quiet because they wanted to look in the back of the van. And, uh, you know, to be honest, you can't really see the bulkhead. You can't really see the sleeping compartment. I put a, like a white curtain across it. Mm-hmm. I, I must have got about 20 or 30 bags in and that's when I reached down. And, and it was hard and I thought, what's that? And then I'll never forget two brilliant white eyes staring up at me and in that moment there was do you know when you're in a situation where you almost go into a different dimension you know it's surreal what what what's this it wasn't an instant reaction to sort of like oh my god there's a person in here it was just confusion and disbelief wondering what was going on? It was almost as if I had an out-of-body experience. And then when I realised, you know, he started moving, I kind of backed up. Uh, and then he stood up and, well, he kind of sat up, rubbing his eyes, and said, uh, am I in England? Mm-hmm. I went, no, mate, you're in... And I was like, still perplexed. So I got out and I said, listen, I remember saying, I know what this looks like, but... I, you know, and I was like, there's a, there's a guy in the back of my van. He was saying, okay, just leave him there. He won't hurt you. Carry on emptying it. So, I mean, me, the adrenaline running through my body at that time was, was immense. You know, no longer was I tired. No longer was I, you know, it was just immense. And then I carried on emptying the bags and uh, I must have emptied another, I don't know, 60 or 70 bags. And I came across another person that was right behind my driver's seat, literally curled up behind my driver's seat asleep. They were both on a train, I found out later. And uh, I just remember thinking, I am so much in the shit here. I, I'm done, I'm done. And I literally, and the, there's been talk, well, he must have known they were there. He, you know, he was trying to smuggle three people into the country. He's a human trafficker and all that. But you know what, that, it was just disbelief. I still can't find the words to explain how I was feeling when first I found that first person. When I found that second person, I got me thinking, what what's happened how has this happened Mm -hmm. and it wasn't till later on that I dissected and debriefed myself how it happened they saw an opportunity when we were cross-loading all those bags from one van to the other Mm -hmm. and I formed a human chain we're obviously in that in that queue yeah and it was I mean and I'm all this time don't forget I'm I'm trying to be very quiet so I don't wake Brew up. 
I eventually emptied the van and uh, they were just sat there in the back of the van looking out to me and all these Border Force people. And then, of course, one, one step forward, told one of them to stay really aggressively, you know, pointed at one, you stay there, you get out, put him straight in handcuffs. Now you, now the second one, you get out, put him straight in handcuffs, and off they went. But they went in separate directions. And this was late, this was obviously so they couldn't collaborate stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And then they went through my van with a fine tooth comb. Engine compartment, they had people on trolleys going underneath the van, on the roof, behind the tyres, searched the engine compartment. They went through that van with a fine tooth comb and never found Brew. (laughs) Wow. And she slept Uh, through the whole thing. She slept through the whole thing. When they said, right, shut your van up, pack up over there, and I said, well, I've missed my ferry, but will I get another one? Uh, they said, yeah, you'll get, well, we've got some paperwork to fill out. You'll probably get the next one. And this is what they're telling me. So this is why I never said anything about Brew. In, into the office walked uh, a French border p- patrol uh, who came up to be really nice uh, really nice, pleasant. Oh, another one, another one that's fallen for their whatever, uh, speaking good English with his French accent. And he said to me, he says, we just need to uh, go to my office and fill out some paperwork and then you'll get the next ferry. Because we'll I'm, I'm saying off, well, will I get the next ferry? He says, oh, yes, 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 you'll get the next ferry. So he, so he jumped into my van and said, can you drive? And he pointed direction. And he's talking to me really nicely, and I'm whispering back to him. <laughs> I'm going. Oh, he says, so, 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 have you been? Have you been in the camp today, working? And I'm going. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been working in the jungle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really, <laughs> really quiet. By this time, it's about three hours later. This whole process I've just described is about three hours, and I've had to load my van back up with all the black bin liners in the rain. I mean, I was like just exhausted now. And we pulled over the French border and he said, can you just stop here, please? So I said, yeah, sure, you know. Well, I I whispered back to him, yeah, sure. (laughs) He says, switch off your engine. So I switched off my engine and he just leant over and put handcuffs off Mm. on me. I said, what are you doing? He went, you know exactly what I'm doing and you know exactly what you've done and frog marched me into the, straight into the back of a van and into a cage in the back of the van. And that whole process happened in less than 30 seconds. So now I'm thinking, am I actually getting the ferry in an hour? <laughs> so now I've got a situation where I'm heading to Coquel Detention Centre in the back of a French police van, knowing that Brew is fast asleep in my van, that they've impounded. They dropped me off at the uh, detention centre in uh, Coquel, straight into a cell. And I'll never forget that cell. The cell had four walls, and three of them were like out of a Victorian prison cell scene. You know, just old stone. There was a hole in the, ro- in the floor, in the corner of the room, uh, that was the toilet and what have you, nothing else. But the front of the cell was fully reinforced, brand new glass. And I was sat in that cell, and opposite me was another cell, 
And I was on my own in that cell. In the, and in the cell opposite, there must have been 40-plus refugees oh. that have obviously tried to make the crossing that night, being arrested and put in cell. And they're all looking at me, and I'm all looking at them. Uh, it, that cell was just crammed full. So I started banging on the glass, knowing at this point I'm going to be there for longer than a couple of hours. It actually turned out to be six days. I started kicking off in the cell, banging the cell door, uh, trying to get attention, and uh, not for any other reason, but to tell them about Brew. Two or three times, the guard on duty came down, shouted at me through the glass, started banging on the glass back to me, really angry, but he didn't realise what I was trying to do. And eventually, after about 20 minutes of really kicking the glass and everything and I, wanting to tell him about Brew, he opened the door, came into the cell right, really aggressively. Well, I'm a big lad. That don't frighten me. I'm, I'm not saying I'm a big hard lad. I'm just a big lad. And I said, you need to go back to my van. And they said, why, why, why we need to... I, I says, there's a little girl above the driving compartment fast asleep. Well, it was like I'd set an atom bomb off. All I could hear from them was sirens and blue lights leaving the Kakel detention centre to go back to my van. Once I'd let them know, I just felt a, a, an immense sense of relief knowing that she was going to be safe, mm -hmm. you know. Because the reason I hadn't told them about it before is because I'd been told on numerous occasions, don't worry, bit of paperwork then you get the ferry, the next ferry. Yeah. Obviously, if they'd arrest me straight away and said, you're going to prison, blah, 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 then I would have just said, oh, you better check behind that curtain then. Yeah. When I looked into the legal wranglings as to why they did that, they, they manipulated the whole scenario to get me back onto French soil. Ah, oh, so that they what could I arrest you done, in France. What I should have done, had I been a little wiser is the British side just said, look, this is British soil and this, this person's claiming asylum. Ah. And stuck to me guns. But, it, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't that aware of it all then. So, so you, they, that's why you drove your van back to the French part, basically. Yeah. The reason why that police, French police officer was really nice and what have you. Wow. And then turned as soon as we got over the border, literally as soon as we got over the French border. And then what, Rob, when they found her? So I was then in my cell and probably about six o'clock in the morning, I got ushered out in handcuffs and they'd set up a specialist investigation team to interrogate me with fear. And I realised at this point that these people are a damn sight cleverer than me. And if I tell them lies, they will very quickly unpick those lies mm. So I, I, I had the good sense to know that from that point onwards, I had to be 100% truthful. Yeah. Uh, which I was. By this time, they'd found Reza in the camp and brought him. He'd actually told them before they'd interviewed me that he had put Brew there without me knowing. Okay. So he was trying to sort of like, you know, back my corner. But I was never gonna. I was never gonna go along with that. I just I, once I decided to tell the truth. But I thought if I'm gonna come out of this, I'm gonna sit down 
and I've got to tell the truth 100%, no matter how bad it is, I've got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So I told them the truth, and they said, well, we've talked to the father, and he said he put her there without you knowing. And I said, that's not true. I said, I knew what I was doing. They were really aggressive, really shouting and really kind of, you know, you're going down for 10 years. That don't frighten me. You know, I've been in the, I was in the army for years. You know, you get used to that. And I think the fact that I was sat there and being calm, not being cocky or clever, but just sat there being calm and collected mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, I did this. My bad. I'm not pleading not guilty. I'm not lying to you. I do remember the French police took great pleasure in telling me that I'd be looking at 10 years. Wow. How had they found Reza? Had you had you told them who to look for yeah. in the camp? Yeah. And they sent Brie uh, back the, to the camp, didn't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I, I'd go back to my cell and just lay there. It's the strangest feeling. I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I was more relieved that Brew was, you know, was safe. I just decided at that point, I've made this decision in my life. I'm, you know, I will take what's coming mm-hmm. and take what come I did. After six days, it was deemed that I had to be given bail okay. and was allowed to return home. They were long six days and 24 hours lockdown, no exercise. The meals were pushed through a letterbox. And that's why I will never eat lasagna again, because every meal, breakfast, dinner, tea, was microwaved, warmed, wet lasagna. Oh, no. It tasted disgusting. But, you know, the only time I got took out of the cell was for more rigorous interviewing. There's one thing about telling the truth. I could tell this story word for word in 50 years, and you will get the same story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? If I make something up, these people are extremely clever mm. and they will, they will know. I just made it my priority to, to tell the truth in as much detail as I could. Mm-hmm. So I did, and that went on for six days. My lawyer, she was a, a young lawyer, a young barrister from Paris, and she wanted to take the case because it was groundbreaking because she'd never heard of a, someone getting caught doing this and, and just saying, yeah, I did it, and pleading guilty. When I was going back to the UK, she said to me, try and get a little bit of coverage in the local newspaper, a couple of press press cuttings that we can, you know, when we go to court, we can show the court and what have you. Mm. When I walked out of jail, the media attention for what I did, it must have been a quiet news week or something, but the media attention was global. I mean, I was on the front of the LA Times, for goodness sake. I was in the Washington Post. I had Channel 7 from Australia ringing me up, Argentina, you know, all over the world. And that I remember, Rob. Yeah. I remember, because we were all volunteering in Calais at that time. Yeah. I really felt it. The amount of global publicity of this story put a lot of pressure on the French judges to show leniency okay. and show what France is all about. Got you. So actually uh, the international press coverage helped you and your case. 100%. And then on the day of the court case, which was in January 2016, we walked around Boulogne Square towards the courthouse and there was a sea of satellite bands. And 
you you can see the pictures of me of me going in and out of court. I'm surrounded by paparazzi. I've seen them. I was very nervous, especially when the media starts saying, look, he could be looking at five years here. But still, the, in the background of my thought process was, my God, this wasn't drugs. This wasn't a guns. This was a four-year-old little girl yeah. living in squalor by a sewer stream. You, you, you saw the jungle. Mm-hmm. You know what? It was a shit tip. That was my saving grace, thinking, you know what, Rob? All you've done is show an extreme form of humanity. Yep. So throughout the process, people often say to me, oh, you must have been so scared, so nervous and all that. No, I wasn't. It's such a strange thing to say that. And it sounds like I'm being all, you know, no, I don't get scared. I'm like that. I'm not being all cocky like that. That's the reality of Mm -hmm. it. I just wasn't scared because I know in the heart of things, I'd highlighted an issue that needed highlighting, albeit accidentally. Yeah, and you'd done something that you truly believed was the right thing to do at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, 100%, yeah. So the court case was in January. Tell us about that. Tell us about the outcome. They had three judges and a prosecutor, but they're taking it out of the hands of the local prosecutor and put it in the hands of France's chief prosecutor. So I remember my lawyer ringing me up before the court. They said, oh, my God, she says, they've put the France's chief prosecutor in charge of the case. And I'm like, that's not good. The courtroom was absolutely jam-packed to the rafters with press, supporters, and all the way out, down the steps and out into the courtyard, supporters and press. It was just, like, surreal. It was just ridiculous. All the cameras focused on me. Went on for about an hour, and I basically just explained myself to the judge. And I'll never forget the chief prosecutor. He was raised above everybody, looking down. Do you know, like them balconies you get at theatres? Mm-hmm. He was like a pantomime villain. Because every time he spoke in French, and everyone understood him, there was like boos, 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 boos from the, my, the supporters, of which there must have been about six or 700 people in there. Wow. The judges went out to uh, deliberate between themselves. But at this point, uh, were you confident about the outcome? You know, that's a good question. Was I confident about the outcome? No, i tell you what I thought the outcome would be. I thought the outcome would be, and my bar- barrister, Lucille, agreed with me. We thought five years was never going to happen, even though the media was pushing that. But what we did think, and Lucille agreed with me, would be 12 months and probably serve six months. Because we, we knew that France couldn't take this lightly, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to hammer me because I've been, I've been so truthful, you know, what I did wrong. We thought that France would want to send out a message. To make an example of you. Yeah. I was left going back into that car thinking, I'm going from this car to Paris, where the prison is. The judges came back in and there was lots of murmuring and noise and he had to quiet in the court down and started deliberating. Well, he's deliberating in French, so I'm two or three lines behind him at all time So because he's getting translated to me. Mm-hmm. And then as something's getting translated to me in a very silent court, the court erupted into... A, Applause and jubilation. 
which kind of sent a shockwave through my body because it came out of nowhere. And it's because the judge had read out the sentence before it had been translated to me. So then I couldn't hear the translation. Oh, my God. Uh, and I'm, I'm bending down to this, this translator who's about five foot, five foot two, this lovely woman. And I couldn't hear what she was saying. And then she stopped talking because you literally could not hear anything because of the noise. But she looked at me and she smiled. So I found out that I'd been let off by her shaking my hand and then shouting in my ear, you're not going to prison, you're going home and I'm very happy for you. It was just, yeah, it was... <laughs> well, Rob, absolutely rightfully so, that the outcome was what it was, and I remember really feeling that at the time. But since then, your oh. life changed a lot, right? You changed the course of your life entirely, really. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I know that story of Reza and Brew had many more twists and turns, and we don't want to give too much away, because we actually want everybody to listen to Girl Taken, which is an mm. incredible 10-part podcast series that you put together about what happened afterwards, right? Yeah. So, so people might say, well, why is it a podcast? So let me explain how it came about. Yes. The, the media never died down for me after the court case for two or three months. And then I had a Hollywood director flying over from L.A. who works for Sundance as a scriptwriter. And they, they're signing me up for the movie rights. I then realised I've got a platform here to get the real stories out about life in refugee camps. So I carried on doing my aid work. So I'd, I went to Thessalonica. I drove to Thessalonica. I drove to Bosnia. I, I went down to Italy, to the coastal towns where they come in on boats. I went to Moria camp. I still do Calais and Dunkirk to this day. The BBC Radio 4 came on board. Uh, Sue Mitchell, producer there, wanted to do a story. So she did a story called Child Rescue. And then when it all started dying down, so about a year later, I got an email from a woman living in Denmark who told me she was Brew's mum. And this email was pages long. And I read this email over and over and over again. It was a real shock to you, right? Because you thought that Brew's mum had died in Afghanistan. Yeah, I've been told she'd been killed in Afghanistan. It was all a bit perplexing to me. So I sat on that for about a week before I made contact, you know, if this is the case, if what she's saying is true, everything I've believed for over two years is a complete fabrication of the truth. And at this point, were you still in contact with Reza and Brew? No. They disappeared. So I just sent Sue Mitchell a text saying, contact me, it's about Brew. She's an executive producer at Radio 4 and has now become a really good friend of mine, actually. And she rang me up and I told her what I knew and we made a plan of how to get the truth out. And that's how the podcast came about. Maybe we shouldn't divulge too much of what is uncovered yeah. because I would encourage everybody to listen to it. Yeah, it has twists and turns that you would never believe, right? And the premise is that, you know, you had one story from Reza and Brew, the father and daughter, and then the mother that you assumed to be or was told to be dead, saying that she'd 
been taken from her and this is your journey to finding the truth over the course of two years right two two years so from from the time when sue mitchell was sat in my front room and we were planning what we could do to the podcast being released was just over two years Mm -hmm. and when i say i worked every single day seven days a week on that podcast sometimes late into the night It consumed my life. The search for that truth consumed my life. You will laugh, you will cry, you will be angry, you will go through a range of emotions listening to that podcast. It's really true. You really will. So any final thoughts on your journey with Bruce family before we finish up? Bruce dad is not representative of what I now know of refugees. He is, mm-hmm. and I say that throughout this po- the podcast, he is a, uh, you know, bad man who did a bad thing. He's, he's not representative of a culture or an ideology or even uh, refugees in general. Yeah, he represents himself as an individual, right? Well, no, and no, that's... Yeah. It was something that you see in the camps is that you have everything there, you know, good and bad and beautiful and not so beautiful. It's like any society. You know what? That's, I've said that. You've just hit the nail on the head. I've said that many times, you know, somewhere like the Moria camp or the jungle or, or these refugee camps, they are so reflective of society. Mm-hmm. But you might think in society is uh, there's a lot of more bad things than good, but that's because of the media agenda. Yeah, inherently, people, for the most part, are good, right? And yeah. I really, truly believe yeah. that. You, you failed to ask the question. The last question that every interview I've ever done, I always know when it's near the end of the interview because they always ask this one okay, question. Okay, go on. They always say, would you do it again? <laughs> I know the answer to that, though, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're damn right, I would. <laughs> I'd love to know your thoughts on Rob's story. To let me know, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. I'd also love to know who else you'd like to hear from in this season or what topics you'd like me to cover. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.